0: ACNFers, before we get into this new and paperback edition, uh, the Patreon gang credit cards were charged, and $92.26 was deposited into the CNF pod coffers. Subtracting about 40% for taxes, that means the podcast earned $55 this month of disposable income to help with book research and other podcast costs. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And... Allow me to thank Dale Ingram, longtime patron, but he upped his contribution from $6 a month to $10 a month. Thank you very much. And if anybody else out there would like to join in, you'll get that much deserved shout out right here, right now. And it might
1: be a year or two years or five years or 10 till anybody tells you you're doing something good.
0: Okay, how's it going, CNFers? Last week, I was a bit of a bummer, but you know, that happens. That happens. I have a Hot Valley pineapple stash. Yay! Hey, hey, it's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara, but then again, you knew that. Shoot. It's another paperback podcast. I like these. I still have to edit them because I, I try to cut them down, and then it's it's awful painful to go listen to me from eight years ago. This is my very, very first conversation with Glenn Stout. Originally episode 14, published in 2015. Oh my God, we were, we were just kids. I'll never forget how nervous I was ahead of this one. Yeah, Glenn uh, was the series editor of Best American Sports Writing, which has since become year's best sports writing, and he's sort of pulled back from his influence in that somewhat. And uh, it was an anthology and is an anthology that I worshipped and worship, and I desperately wanted to be in. I, it's, it's not going to happen, but that's a me problem and a talent problem. I consider Glenn a pal. Now And he puts me in touch with some writers who have books coming out, and a couple will be coming on the show in the ensuing months once I read their books. Glenn has counseled many a writer. He's kind of like the Rick Rubin of editing. He's the author of The Young Woman in the Sea, which is being adapted into a movie starring Daisy Ridley for Disney+. Plus. Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, The Pats, The Selling of the Babe, and like a hundred others. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm not being hyperbolic when I say a hundred others. His name is on more than a hundred books. Or maybe it's 100 books. Either way, look it up, bro. Having trouble breathing? Visit glennstout.com. And maybe hire him to help you with your floundering baseball memo. Working with Glenn is like getting a real world MFA this episode we talk about effort I often refer to that a lot came from this one about what you can control why we always tell stories and intuiting the story that emerges from the research and the writing I cut out what was no longer germane and a lot of my stupid voice you're welcome so here's the paperback podcast with Glenn. Oh, I'm sorry. Before we get to that. I do have a parting shot at the end of this. I know. Expect that in a moment. Okay. Here is Glenn Stout, a pal, brilliant writer, brilliant editor. Just a good CNF and dude. <laughs> To start off, asking you about was um, sort of the opening line to uh, your essay in the Best American Sports Writing this year that you that you grew up a sick kid, and I was wondering like how did that inform th- the person and the writer you became, and what impact that had on your adolescence, and then ultimately what you went into as an adult.
1: Well, I, I mean, I kind of I think more about it now than I ever did then. Mm-hmm. So then I was just it was just the way things were. And I don't want to overstate it. I wasn't like you know a cancer victim or something like that where yeah. I was on life and death all the time. I was just sick all the time mm-hmm. and would get sick off and would have to you know had breathing trouble and would have to be in bed and uh missed a lot of school and things like that. I think it just you know leads you to having somewhat of a more internal life and that leads itself to books and reading. You know, I I spent a lot of time in the hospital when I was really little, and in a a weird way, I kind of think some of the normal bonding that often takes place uh, maybe didn't quite Take places strongly with me. Um, so, you know, I found my bonds elsewhere um, emotionally, and that would be, you know, in the imagination or to other things. I mean, I was, you know, this this baseball obsessed kid from the time I could walk. Nobody could ever really explain it. I, I spent, you know, so much time, you know, buried under quilts, uh, reading stacks of books, um, you know, with some mindless television on in the background. I think you know. As I got older, slowly I also got healthier. Uh, I really wasn't sick too much once I reached junior high and high school. Not ne- not nearly as much as I was before, because I was also very vigorous. I was a big kid, mm-hmm. always doing sports. You know, it's not like you know I had extended periods where I where I couldn't do anything. But these would be weeks and two week week, week long, two weeks. You know, once I had mono and it was like six weeks, you know, once again, it kind of, it made, you know, adolescence a little awkward because you don't feel totally comfortable with who you are because you, in the back of your head, you think there's something wrong with you. You know, in the back of your head, you think you're probably not going to live a
0: long time, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, all these crazy
1: kid thoughts that would go through your head. So, you know, so all that informs it in a way and just led me to to spend a lot of time in books and a lot of time reading and, uh, you know, a lot of time imagining. and, uh, And when you live in the interior world, I think you kind of become a little obsessed about how you express yourself.
0: Right. And when you were when you were fourteen and that kicked in, did was there a a mentor or a, a teacher that no, no, no,
1: not really. I mean, uh, you know, I've described the moment before and it was there was an assignment in eighth grade to basically cut pictures out of magazines and illustrate them with poems. And uh for whatever reason my brother had an anthology at home, my brother was four years older and it was uh Langston Hughes. And I read this poem called Suicide's Note um, that goes, The calm, cool face of the river asked me for a kiss. Hmm. And, uh, you know, it's that image gazing into the water. For whatever reason, I saw that. It knocked me on my ass. Uh, Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe that something could do that. It almost makes me tear up every time I think about it because it was that's like that's a Tory moment that. you know, pitched me sort of headlong into words in one way or another. Uh, I mean, I was probably the only 14-year-old kid in rural Ohio who was reading The Simple Stories by Langston Hughes when they were 14 years old. But, you know, I read Hughes, and then I read, you know, writers related to Hughes and writers related to those writers, and sort of on my own from the age of 14 to 18 worked my way through uh, 20th century uh, American literature, particularly poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of without instruction, except for this used bookstore uh, in Columbus, Ohio, called My Back Pages, where these two, uh, uh, the two hippies who ran it were really indulgent and would uh, let me roam the bookstore for hours. And it wasn't, very, it wasn't a very big store. Mm-hmm. So um, I actually just uh, contacted one of the guys recently and thanked him for that because it was such a transformative thing to be able to go somewhere where you could be surrounded by words and this, like, word life had some, uh, some currency.
0: Huh. What were those exchanges like with them?
1: You know, I'd see what I was buying and, like, oh, have you read this? Have you read this? You might like this. Uh, just very, very, not very aggressive, you know. Just, uh, um, but they took me seriously.
0: Too. Mm-hmm.
1: It wasn't, "Hey, kid," you know, stop yeah. on over the books. Yeah, um, you know. So, and that was just very, very helpful at that time.
0: Was that one of the the earliest times that someone was taking taking you seriously and your reading seriously? And well, what kind I of...
1: think so. I mean, I also had a, I had a wonderful teacher in high school who. Was Mm-hmm. And she was the, the journalism teacher, you know, And I was involved with the school paper. We actually called it a news magazine then. <laughs> and, um, you know, she really liked me. She basically let me do whatever I wanted and write as much as I wanted. And, you know, there were times where, you know, I wrote almost every word in the newspaper, uh, so it seemed at that time. And, you know, and that was just very important because you know, she paid attention to me and she let me know that she thought I was talented at what I was doing. That made a difference, Mm -hmm. you know, and then gave me opportunity to do it. I mean, to this day, the only journalism class I ever took was in high school. So that was, you know, that was all hugely important because you're, you know, even then I kind of realized what I was getting in class was was relatively meaningless. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, the teachers didn't know very much. I realized I was better read than they were in 20th century American literature by the time I was about 16, Mm -hmm. Uh, because I'd ask them about people and they'd look at me like I was from Mars. (laughs) Uh, You know, they might be able to to talk about Mark Twain, but it's pretty much stopped there. (laughs) Uh, You know, in the meantime, I'm reading, you know, Charles Olson and Jack Kerouac and, you know, William Burroughs and, you know, just this a lot of crazy whacked out stuff and a lot of uh, um, much more contemporary stuff.
0: Right. And why do you think you were drawn to sports as a backdrop for a lot of your writing?
1: Happened by accident. I, I mean, I went through college as a creative writing major and was um, very heavily involved in writing poetry. And um, uh, after I got out of college, I was involved in the poetry scene in Boston uh, a bit and was really into that. And, you know, you're always told to kind of combine the things you like. Sort of on a lark, sort of for fun. I think it was like 1982 or 1983. I decided that on opening day, I would combine two things I liked, poetry and baseball. And I would go outside the Green Monster at Fenway Park on opening day, starting about 9 o'clock in the morning. The game started, I think, at 1, and I would read baseball poetry. And so I got an old baseball uniform, and a friend loaned me a little pig battery-operated amplifier, and I went out there with a binder full of poems, and I read baseball poetry in uniform while drinking a massive two-liter bottle of Bloody Marys. <laughs> um, I sent out press releases ahead of time, Um, (laughs) and oddly enough, people profiled me, people interviewed me and nobody hit me. (laughs) Um, I got jeered some, I got cheered some, um, but the response was actually pretty positive. And I ended up doing that for nine years. And a couple of times, friends of mine joined me. You know, I ended up on TV a lot, ended up on radio a lot. I also ended up meeting people there. I mean, I met Bill Littlefield of NPR's Only a Game Yeah. Uh, right when he was getting started, because he did a story on me. I met uh, the late George Kimball, um, sports writer for the Boston Herald that way. Uh, I met some friends that way. It was kind of a nutty kid, crazy thing to do, but... You know, it was the two things, combining two things. And I thought, well, maybe there's something to this. And it wasn't long after that, a couple years after I started doing that, that I kind of stumbled onto this intriguing sports story about why the Boston Red Sox manager killed himself in 1907. Um, I thought it was interesting. Mm -hmm. I worked at the Boston Public Library at the time. I could research the story in the old... Microfilm newspapers because we had them all, and at that time there were eight or ten, you know, daily newspapers in Boston. Uh, and I kind of sort of figured out what happened. Uh, I thought it was a great story. Well, what do I do with this? Um, well, I'll write a story about it. I'll try to sell it. How do you do that? I looked at a book that said how to be a freelance writer. Okay. Hmm this is how you write a pitch letter. Okay. I uh, sent it off to two places. You know, the Boston Globe Sunday Magazine sent me a mimeographed rejection letter. I always tell people it was mimeographed because that places it in time because, you know, mimeographs are, are artifacts now of an mm-hmm. earlier age. Boston Magazine, the editor asked me to come see him. And, uh, I've, you know, I've written about it a number of times that I went in and I talked to him for an hour and he Decided to take the story on spec, and as I was leaving his office, he said, You can write, can't you? Because I had no (laughs) clips, and I said I could. About a week later, after staying up, you know, I'm still working full-time, staying up nights and and going in early and doing more research and then writing it out longhand four or five times, I went into the library, used the IBM Correctable Selectric typewriter because uh, I'm not a touch typist. I'm still not. I just use a couple of fingers. Uh, I typed it up, I turned it in, they bought it, and he said, what do you want to do next? And I've never been without an assignment. I, I realized then that this was kind of, it was a lane I enjoyed, kind of sports history, and that the kind of research I was doing, not many people were doing it. And I was able to kind of duplicate that story, that process, over and over and over and over again. And to, to, the, to a degree, I still do, um, because a lot of people don't want to put in the hours of research that this kind of, that historical work needs. I enjoy it, so it doesn't bother me, but, you know, sometimes you sit in front of a microfilm machine for two weeks. I enjoy that.
0: Yeah, and I think there's also a fear that um, that you can do a lot of research, maybe weeks and months of research, maybe more more accurately as weeks and come away with nothing. So you feel like you've wasted a lot of time too. And maybe people don't, there's such an urgency to try to get, get the, get your work out there and get your work published that you almost don't, that people don't want to like put in that initial pre-reporting, pre-research with, yeah, with that maybe. uncertainty. I mean, I
1: just didn't know any better. I only knew one way to do it. You know, and I don't, there's hardly anything that I ever did much research on that, that never but never turned into anything. Um, I, I, I think I basically sold everything I ever wrote. And I didn't realize that that was a difficult thing. Had, yeah. I, had I known what I know now about this whole business, I was like, you know, why would I have even tried?
0: Yeah. Um, and I
1: tell that to people all the time now. Nothing about doing this makes any logical sense. It doesn't. It didn't then, it doesn't now. Uh, nevertheless, people continue to do it. Because when people say, "Should I try this? Should I go freelance? Should I do this?" I, that's that's what I tell them. It doesn't make any sense. If you stop and think about it, it doesn't make any sense. But people do it
0: all the time. Yeah, I, I think what you touched upon earlier too is when you were pitching your first couple assignments, is that you had this full time day job, and I think I think that's really important to to note that it's that that's not uncommon uh, for oh, people yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. have I that. Mean, you know, I, I,
1: I get a little frustrated sometimes when i hear from younger writers you know who are 24 25 who are frustrated that they um you know haven't been don't have a full-time job doing this that they're not you know pulling down a hundred thousand dollars writing for somebody i didn't write that first story till i was 27 years old you know i was out of college five years (laughs) (laughs) you know and 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 I, i get you know people who are frustrated you know uh, who are 25, 26, and have already done, already have an arm's length worth of clips, you know, and I try to tell them, you are so far ahead of me, it's unimaginable. Yeah. So, you know, there's something to be said for patients. And quite, and I never had a full-time job doing this until the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, you know, it's that was never something I really thought of. I mean, I was extremely, uh, and I have been extraordinarily lucky. Uh, there's no question about that. But the other thing, you can only control one thing, and that's your effort. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, I did work really hard. I have worked really hard. Sometimes people hear that and they go, oh, God, here we go. It's the old, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps bullshit. But it's like there's one thing you can control, and that's mm-hmm. your effort. You can't control anything else, anything else. So, yep. you know, control what you, control what you can, and, you know, if the work itself, to a point, isn't the reward, you shouldn't be doing it anyway. If you need somebody to hand you a check to, to make sure you, I mean, you know, when I say I didn't publish anything until 27, that didn't mean that I didn't write between the ages of 21 and 27. I wrote all the time. Yeah, uh, I wasn't writing prose, necessarily, but I was writing. No one was handing me a check. Uh, no one was telling me to do it. Um, I had a, a a group that would get together in my apartment once every couple of weeks, on usually like a Wednesday night. And our only rule was you had to bring something to read, and it was better if you wrote it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we would sit around and read stuff out aloud, mostly what we'd written ourselves. If not, we could bring something interesting that you, you wanted others to know about. And we'd do that, and we'd start drinking beer and start talking. And that gave us an impetus to continue to write uh, at a time when you're just out of school, where you know you don't have an assignment anymore. Nobody's given you a check to do this, but but if this is what you want to do, you find a reason to do it, and that was the reason to do it because you didn't want to you didn't want to stand up there, you know, with your pants down around your ankles with nothing to read in front of your friends.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's like you like you said like. You know, the horizon is, you can never catch the horizon. So you have to be grounded in the work. You know, if you get a a piece published in The New Yorker or anything, it's not really going to necessarily change anything because you're just going to keep, you're going to keep riding on. So unless you're grounded in in the process of the work and love process, then you're always going to be miserable. It's just yeah, because exactly,
1: there's... you know, you're always going to be chasing after something that's that's unattainable.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Um, uh, you know, I mean, not everything I've done has been as successful as I've wanted it to be. Um, not everything has, you know, sold as much or made as much money or made as much an impact. But you know, you can't control that. You can only control what you do. And you know, um, if you're, you know, and, and in and, and a lot of ways. Things that haven't done very well have been satisfactory to me. I mean, some of the things that I'm most happy with ever having written, you know, are things that have never been published. Mm. Um, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> yeah. you know? But this is, this is what I do, and this is how I, um, def- you know, how I define myself in this world. It's through words and oh. doing things with words. That's it, I write, you know, and that entails a lot of things. That entails writing books, that entails, you know, writing articles, that entails editing, that entails, you know, poems, this is, you know, I write every day. And not, not like i uh, I'm not like a metronome and I don't follow a schedule, um, but, you know, this is what I do.
0: So what needs to be in place for you to pursue a story, or or what's your green light for you to, to you see something and you're like okay this is something I can really lean into and pursue with all your energy. Well, you know
1: are you talking about something that that's for my own writing?
0: Yeah, yeah, for your own writing.
1: Well, it's a, it's a, something I don't know anything about.
0: Mhm. I mean, that's the, the the that's the
1: safest and simplest answer. Or or there's something I thought I knew about, and now I realize that it's not true. I think it's not true. So what really happened? I mean, it's those two things. I know nothing about this, so I'm going to find out about it. Or what I know about this is wrong, and I want to find out the truth.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, um, that's basically been, I would say, probably a guiding force behind just about everything I've written, whether it's, you know, the baseball titles I've done, You know, Red Sox, hence Century, which exploded a lot of myths about the Red Sox and was basically the first book to get into, to take race seriously with the Red Sox and to explore many of their myths, to, you know, the oral history I did with the workers at, at, uh, the construction workers at Ground Zero, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: which, you know, if you still ask most people today, they think that 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 was primarily done by police and firemen. Um, you know, it wasn't. The construction workers were there every day for nine months. Ninety-five percent of the police and firemen worked a two-, two, two or three-week rotation and were gone and never came back. Uh, you know, the construction workers bore the brunt of that. And then, like the Gertrude Ederle book, you know, I stumbled across. Why didn't I know? Why hadn't I heard about her? Why hadn't I heard that in 1926 this 19-year-old woman became the fifth person to swim the English Channel, and she broke the existing men's record by two hours. Why didn't I know that? I knew about Jackie Robinson. You know? (laughs) I knew about all these other pioneers, but I'd never heard about her. So I want to find out. Start poking around and, you know, you start talking to people. If there's people to talk to, you start reading everything you can about it, and you start constructing... The narrative that previously
0: did not exist yeah, specifically with young woman in the sea at at yeah like, uh, how surprised were you that nothing extensive had been or nothing to the to the point that was satisfactory to you as a reader was done well, was on her and that allowed you to because, go you know she was kind of a seminal figure i mean you can take women's sports
1: before her and afterwards and basically before her there isn't any Mm -hmm. and after her is a flood she hadn't been written about and and when i first kind of stumbled over her she was still alive Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
1: she was well up into her 90s but she was still alive and may have had a part of part to do with it, why no one had written about her. Uh, I don't know. She'd stayed out. She'd lived a very private life and stayed out of the limelight, and people just weren't looking backwards very closely. Um, you know, so I really don't know. Now, of course, as soon as I decided to do a book, two other people did too. Yeah. Um, which is always, you know, you always run into that too. But, um, you know, I just went ahead regardless.
0: You know, I, I love how you started that book too with. That, uh, that sort of gripping, gripping scene of just uh, you know, these, uh, you know, these people who can't, who can't swim.
1: One of the reasons why that story had never been told is because it's kind of, you had to, you had to know a lot just to even tell it. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you had to know was that basically, before the turn of the century, is that people in the West did not swim. Very few people knew how to swim. Uh, a staggeringly few number. I mean, if you look at any picture of people on the beach at the turn of the century, the beaches are black with people, and there'll be like 10 people in the water. Mm-hmm. No one knew how to swim. And part of it was cultural, and part of it was moral, you know, particularly with women, and women in particular didn't swim. Um, so I felt the reader needed a lot of education just to realize how amazing this was, and, and put it in the context of the era of, of when people were arguing, you know, that women couldn't run more than 200 yards, yeah. you know, that, you, you know, you're a woman, you weren't even supposed to sweat, and here's this, you know, partially deaf 19-year-old, and she swims across the English Channel. Kind
0: of amazing. Yeah. So what was your, um, you know, what's your approach to the research and in, in the in the writing? You know, once you're in into the story, like, what does your day kind of look like as you go forward with a project?
1: Well, I mean, you know, if you have to go somewhere to do research, that's a different thing. Like, if I have to go into, uh, you know, Boston to use the library, a library or New York or somewhere else, you know, you go to these places and you go into the library or wherever where the research materials are, and you go in at 9 a.m. and you come out at 5, and you do that because you have to make use of that time. In general, now, if I'm working on a book, what I like to do is to do, I like to work first thing in the morning, for one, Mm -hmm. and I like to put in several hours and then take somewhat of a break, and then every time I go back to the material, I always go... A couple of pages, maybe 500 words, back to what I just written, and I revise forward, and that puts me back into the flow, and then I continue to write. You know, myself, my pace. I think it's important that every writer learns how they work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's it's useful to hear how other people work, but just because one person is so disciplined that they write 1,500 words by 549 every morning, uh, and you don't do that, doesn't mean that you're not a writer. Neither does it mean if you don't stay up all night and write on your bed that you're not a writer or sit in a coffee shop like that. You find what works for you. Mm -hmm. And I found what worked for me. And for me, it's like, hey, I can get 2,000 good words out a day. I can do more, and I have, but they're not going to be good ones. And in the long run, I'm going to have to go back and spend just as much time to to, to to get to the end, uh, if I write 8,000 words in one day, that's going to take me three or four days to fix.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know,
1: if I do about 2,000 a day, that works. So you just, you know, you put your head down, you organize your notes in the way that you're comfortable with. I mean, you know, Wright-Thompson has these elaborately organized binders. That's great for Wright-Thompson. Mm-hmm. I got piles of stuff stacked all over the place. Yeah, uh, That's really efficient for right. My way is really efficient for me. It doesn't mean his is better. It doesn't mean mine's better. Mm-hmm. Find what works for you. And then don't get hung up on how other people do things. Certainly if you find somebody does something that's useful for you, adopt that method. You know, steal that idea, sure. Find what, find what works for you. And then just go forward with it. For me, it's like, you know, you organize things sort of. In order by time, and you try to tell that story.
0: Absolutely. Find,
1: try to find the story in the mass of stories you have. You know, yeah. every story is made up of a lot of little stories.
0: Yeah, and then it's just a matter of, uh, of linking them, and then voila, you have narrative. Well,
1: and linking them or sometimes seeing the larger story in those little stories. Yeah. The larger story often isn't in the little stories. Mm-hmm. But cumulatively it
0: might be of the little stories how do you decide which of those little stories might uh isolated doesn't feel like it belongs but in the grand picture it makes sense
1: for me there's a there's just an organic feel to it i mean you know when you do a book proposal you have to write a an outline and i do one and generally i never look at it again I have a rough idea of what I want to do. And even if I do have an outline, if it's more than two pages, I've like, I've really been trying to impress somebody because, you know, it's just, it doesn't mean anything to me. But once the material starts coming together, I, you know, I't can I was talking to somebody about this earlier this morning. I can't think stories out in advance until I start putting it together on the page. That's the time when for me, and other people might be different, connections start being made. Mm-hmm. You start seeing what resonates. You start seeing what speaks to itself in the story. You start seeing a narrative come out. It might not be the exact one you thought that was there, and that's fine. I I think there's a lot to be said for making sure that you allow creative, organic discovery and evolution to take place, rather than trying to be this controlling dictator who's going to force a story to a place where it doesn't want to go. I talk to writers about that a lot. Oh, you always write what is. You don't write what you want. Okay? Okay. A lot of people get in trouble trying to write what they want rather than writing what is. I never have an issue with a writer who uh, the story changes. And they say, you know, I thought it was going to be this, but when I got there, it's this. Is that okay? I'm like, that's that's absolutely okay. The last thing I want is a story that you're, you're making into something that it's not. So, I mean, and that's kind of a feel thing from just practice is you... you, you You've had that happen with stories, and you just start to detect the narrative, the important narrative.
0: So what brings you back, or what inspires you as an editor and a writer?
1: Boy, you know, I, I mean, I, I keep it simple. I, the goal of anything you write, and the goal of anything you read, is you want to you read it again. You don't want it to be just... Um, You don't want it to be just something pleasant that goes by. Yep. You want it to be something that makes you lose yourself in it and read it again. That's the stuff. You know, people say, how can you keep doing the sports writing book? My God, you have to look at all this stuff. How can you keep on doing it? Because every month or every couple of weeks, a story makes me go, whoa. Whoa. And, you know, and I forget how much time I've just spent reading it. It might have been 10 minutes, it might have been 20 minutes. I mean, because the best, the best work takes you completely, you, you know, you lose yourself in time uh, with it. And it's timeless. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget, there's a, a poem by Theodore Rutke, who's one of my favorite, favorite poets, And for for whatever reason, I had heard that poem read first before I ever saw it on the page. And I'll never forget when I saw it on the page, just being stunned that it was like eight lines long. Hmm. Read aloud, it was, you know, it was timeless. I I had no idea how long this poem was because it took me someplace. Mm -hmm. It spit me out a different person. And then I see, and it's just these, you know, eight or nine simple lines. I'm like, you kidding me? You know, but that's the power, you know, that's what I, it takes you out of this experience and brings you to this, this other experience, this other reality. Um, you know, words do change things. Not much else really does.
0: Right. Right, and I wonder where, uh, and you, you're kind of alluding to it right now, but I wonder where, where your optimism lies with with narrative and with this really unpredictable media landscape like where do where yeah, do you you just can't st-
1: not no matter what happens people are going to write this is an impulse that is is built in us from the start we tell stories that's how we connect with each other we tell stories that, that, that that's as old as the human experience so just because those stories aren't being monetized right now in ways that are particularly easy for people to participate in doesn't affect the fact that we tell stories at one point or another you know um there will be forums for those stories now maybe it's going to be you know armageddon and we're all going to be sitting around the 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 you know the uh the fire in the tin can in the backyard of some apocalyptic nightmare, we're going to be telling stories or it might be in some brand new media that's all flashy and shiny. That makes us wealthy. We're going to be telling stories. You cannot go through this world. You can't. I mean, somebody earlier this week, you know, told me like, Oh, you need to write a memoir. (laughs) I was like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Uh, You know, I don't need that kind of introspection, personally. If you write a memoir, then the story's over. Yeah. You can't change it then. I can tell you the same story ten times. I can make it better every time. You know, that's what editing is. Editing is you're just telling the same story over and over, making it better. You know, when you finally publish it, it's kind of disappointing. Yeah. Because, damn, now it's this.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And,
1: you know... And you always start out thinking, you know, you want it to be the greatest thing this person's ever written. You want it to be the best thing you've ever worked on. You want it to be the best thing about the subject. You know, it's, and then it's, you know, at a certain point you realize, you know, 99.9% of the time it's not going to be that. Well, okay, well, you still have to make it as best as you can. Um, but, you know, you, you have to remain aspirational. You know, I ask all my writers, I want this to be the best story you've ever done.
0: Let's start with that. Yeah, and why not start there? Why not be why ambitious? Let's start with
1: that. I mean, what do you, what do you want to do? This, well, I want this to be, you know, the 60% best story I've ever done. You know, screw that. <laughs> I mean, and I understand, we're not going to make it all the time. But, you know, God damn it, every once in a while we do. And then it's like, oh, once you've done something great once, you want to do better. And you can see, even in this thing that everybody's telling you is, is great, that, oh, I could have done this, I could have done this, I could have done this. And all of a sudden, your end goal is, is, is at a different place than it was. You know, you, you might have just been trying to get another contract. Now you're trying to do something else. And a contract's nice. I'm not diminishing how difficult it is to make a living in this business. I did it for 22 years without a job. And I know how hard it is. And, you know, it's, and it's not like that, you know, believe me, the best American sports writing does not pay a living wage. That mm-hmm. pay a minimum wage. That, that is not something you live off of, believe me. Mm-hmm. So you have to do all sorts of other things and cobble it together. I know it's hard. Okay, but as I said before, you can control how hard you work and you can try to do tell the best story you can. And you, can, and you can look at the work at the end and then say, okay, now let's see, you know, if the world will meet me with this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had an, an early writing teacher, Robert Kelly at Bard College, a poetry teacher there. He told us all not to worry about publishing anything. He says, as long as you share it with people, he says, if it's good enough, it will end up published. Just, you know, as long as
0: you're not writing it and sticking it in a drawer. Yeah. But just share it with your friends.
1: That's how I did. And he also told us, he says, you know, he says, you're probably not going to write anything worthwhile until you're 30. He says, but he says, by the time you're 30, he says, if you're still writing, he says, you're a writer. You know, he says, your next 10 years, from 20 to 30, is going to determine whether you're a writer or not. Because you're going to have to learn to do this on your own, outside of a structure of school where you're getting, you know, constant feedback and support. Your friends are patting you on the back and all this stuff. You know, you move into the into the, uh, the work part of it where you're there by yourself with your ass in a chair doing it. And you do it the next one day and then you do it the next day. And then you do it the next day. And it might be a year or two years or five years or ten till anybody tells you you're doing something good. Well, it's, what, where was it supposed to be easy, you know? You know, and I'm not trying to overstate it. I'm not trying yeah. to, you know, come off like you know I'm like, uh, um, you know this, you know, Nobel Prize winner or anything. You know, I'm a ham and egger guy, man. I'm a, <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm a triple A outfielder. But you know, but you play. <laughs> you
0: know, yeah, you play.
1: You go out there. You do it. You know, I did a lot of construction work when I was young, okay? That's how I got through college, so I poured a lot of concrete. And I tell people I learned as much about writing from that as from anything else. Writing a book is hard. Writing a book is complicated. So is building an 800,000-square-foot warehouse. you got to put a lot of work into that. It takes a long time, but you do things incrementally. And goddamn, after a year, there's this building. Mm-hmm. Goddamn, after a year, there's this book. Yeah. And, you, you know, you get up with the sun, <laughs> and you go out there every day. I mean, it's ridiculously uh, simple, and it's, uh, 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 it's ridiculously simple in some ways. And I try to, to, to make the point that there is nothing really special about this. People work every day doing all sorts of things this is not so precious right it's you know it's nice to think that and and i think we all have at some point and we like to think with the tortured artists and all this stuff and uh you know one of the most poignant things i've ever read was was a quote from rambo Rambeau, i'm sorry rambo uh you know who gave up writing at like age 20 And he said something like, nobody's serious at 17, because he was, nobody else was. And, and, you know, it's easy to feel that way, and it's easy to feel shut off. And and it's easy for people to say, well, Glenn, that's easy for you to say, you've done this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, it's not. Believe me, uh, there's a lot of staring at the abyss. You don't know what's next. Right. And, um, you know. If you're Stephen King or somebody—you got enough money, you don't have to worry about it. But uh, for the rest of us, you know, there's always the anxiety of what comes next, and it's—it's—it's um, it's, it's really no different. Uh, scarier a little now because I actually do know how hard it is.
0: That—that that was uh, admittedly strange going that far back in the archives. Let me tell you. I believe that was recorded in 2015. I am correct in that because I did fact check it. So we're talking like eight years ago. I was 35 and so, so desperate and frustrated. So very desperate. All right, parting shot. Since I've been hanging out on threads a bit more, it's, the only social media footprint for the podcast Instagram as well but yeah they're like kissing cousins those two I'm struck by the desperation of others let's say it's uh the NaNoWriMo crowd let's say I'm not sure why they're popping up in my feed but whatever you know I'm not exactly a NaNoWriMo guy. Um, one day, I don't I don't hate or begrudge. I'm not one of those writers who's just like, you guys aren't real writers. And uh, what you see are some people clamoring to show their works in progress. And I'm like, hold the fuck on. This is pointless on a number of levels because what you're looking for isn't feedback, but reassurance. And as Seth Godin has said, on this podcast, this one, reassurance is futile. Also, as I post podcast-related stuff, I see the same people constantly threading, and I'm like, holy shit, stop talking about writing and just go write. I see the same goddamn cycle that I was enveloped in 10 years ago, maybe more. Desperate, bitter, bitter trying to gain a following when in reality I had no writing worth following. I might argue that I still don't, but at least I've scaled back on the social media aspect of it. Many writers get this backwards, like so ass backwards. They want to develop a following through social media to then dump their content onto you like slime and thinking that a social media following equates to a a, a sellable platform. And what you inadvertently do is call attention to just how shitty a writer you are. Trust me, speaking from experience, what you need to do is write and publish, write and publish, write and publish. Just keep fucking doing that. And that's how you build an audience of people who actually want to read you. Then your social media grows if you want it to. Even if you don't want it to, as a result, it's just going to happen because you're doing work, doing publishable work, doing good work. But so many writers want to build up. What I hope you're now realizing is a meaningless follower count and wasting your time and energy on what should be spent on being a better writer, researcher, editor, reader, whatever. It annoys me so much because I just, I see myself in them and I deeply hate myself. The thing is, there's no universal playbook. I, I gotta, I, I got like, Beats the shit out of me how this happened, but I got like a double take look of a book deal because I started a podcast 10 fucking years ago. A friend put me in touch with an agent looking to build her book, and I happen to be locked into a major sports figure of the 20th century who doesn't have a quote unquote definitive biography on him. Shoot. There's no playbook for that. And shit, if I'll ever get another book deal after this, it's out of my control. I can't bestow advice or appease anyone who reeks of the same desperation I long experienced. There's only this, man. Just show up. Write a blog every day. Publish a podcast every week. Do it not for fame or platform, but out of service or love. Like, will it work? Well, you'll start to get better. It won't happen overnight, that's for damn sure. It'll happen gradually. You know, like, how a Polaroid picture slowly develops? It's kind of like that. It's not blank, then, boom, developed like a digital image. The picture just emerges slowly. Don't shake it. uh, A friend of a buddy of mine in high school worked for Polaroid, and he's like, that doesn't do anything. Uh, So... It just emerges and then you're like, oh, oh, there it is. Developing skills as a writer and editor or an interviewer is so slow. It is so gradual. It's glacial. I'm going to mix metaphors. That's a good name for another podcast, the Mixed Metaphors podcast. It's like glacial retreat. It's just like you take these snapshots over the years like, holy shit, it used to be there and now it's way up there and it's kind of toasty in here it's so slow but you don't realize and then you look behind you and you look at all the wreckage and you're like whoa look at that it's like what glenn said in this episode that i hope you listened to all the way through all you can control is your effort there's no pressure cooker for this shit there's no way to expedite but there sure as fuck are ways to slow yourself down speaking from experience comparing yourself to others Excessive social media use, or not even use, but just like scrolling and you're like, and you just allow shit to get into your bloodstream, posting about writing instead of writing. Convincing yourself you're cultivating a community online when you're just wasting time. And at the end of the day, it's eating a bag of potato chips, man. It's another day lost, another day you'll never get back, and you feel bloated and shitty. I mean, when I see people post this stuff on Instagram or Threads, I, I it shouldn't bother me, but I let it bother me. It bothers me because of the shame I feel for my former self, all that wasted time and effort on the wrong things. I wish I had someone to tell me how much research goes into even the most basic of pitches, how much research you really should be doing ahead of a book proposal how to write a good pitch or how to find editors and how to do mercenary work that affords the luxury of doing the narrative work you want to post on social media. Or that social media is going to make you feel so bad about who you are and where you are that you'll likely waste years of your life worrying about the wrong bullshit. Reassurance is futile. Saying that again, we can control our effort, just like Glenn said, and we can surround ourselves with real people who will give us hard truths to make us better, and we will finish the essay or the book. Toast to its completion. Celebrate that, please. And then while the embers are still burning down on the filter, light the next cigarette and keep going, man. Fuck, I didn't. I didn't see much of this coming when I started this parting shot, but I'm kind of glad I got it off my chest. So stay wild, CNFers. And if you can do, interview. See ya.